Well, we have been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, which if you haven't been going through it, um, then uh, yeah, you're, you're jumping in again at a weird spot. Um, and we're here sort of in the chapter 7 to 9, we're in the back end of it, and it's been a long sort of philosophical, cynical, critical kind of argument, uh, a kind of a, a thesis that's been put forward by this character, the teacher, but even the teacher is not really the author of the book, as we've heard. It's more like, a, uh, like, a, like there's been a, an English teacher who has got this really great, really great book. They almost 100% endorse it, but, and they give it to you saying, you've just got to read this. It's going to be so good for you, with a little intro at the start and a little outro at the end, just to keep you on track. And we're now winding through chapters 7 to 9, noticing a couple of themes. Tonight we're picking up two themes, these themes of evil and judgment that it winds around. So, yep, it's going oh, to be exciting. <laughs> it will genuinely be uplifting, uh, even though we're actually picking on some, some themes that are a little bit harder. Uh, how about I pray and uh, I ask you to join me with me in praying that God would help me to, do, to speak truthfully and well. Heavenly Father, please, Lord, help us to hear Put your spirit in our hearts. May we see and understand your words and your word. And we may receive your message to us tonight. That, Lord, we may be wise and that we may know the one who holds our fate in his hands. We ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. It's an interesting kickoff. He kicks off here, just going to double check that my uh, clicker is going to work. He kicks off here in verse 25 saying, I'm going to investigate, well, I'm actually going to investigate wickedness and folly. But do you notice he kind of gives the game away? It's almost like, I mean, in the literal sense, he, it's, this is a foregone conclusion. The conclusion has gone before the investigation has been done. He says, I began to investigate the folly of evil, the stupidity of wickedness. It's like he's saying, we all know evil's bad. I mean, I know what I meant to find here. It's kind of a strange tack. The teacher has been so meticulous so far, and yet he starts here with, uh, oh, I'm already telling you the conclusion before I've done the investigation. Now, this text doesn't stop being strange. Verse 26. Verse 26, it seems pretty clear. Sorry, I went too quickly there that he, this guy has not had a good experience with women. <laughs> Did you notice that? I mean, 1,000 women, he says, and I can't find a single good one. This guy, he's, and again, remember, remember that um, in this book, that one of the key things for the teacher is that our experience of a thing is not the same as the thing itself. And so we note that even when we, uh, when we evaluate his arguments. Now, at the start of this book, when we get introduced to this teacher figure, the teacher's not named. And yet, in every description, it's so Solomonic, isn't it? Uh, is, is the, the, the great king, the one who'd increased in wisdom and riches more than anyone else who had been king in Jerusalem before him. And so, at the very least, the author wants us to see this person as a Solomon-like figure. Now, if you know anything about Solomon, he was a man who was involved with a lot of women. He had a lot of experience of women. And he says, this man says, out of a thousand, one faithful man, but not one woman. Funny that. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 plus 300 is a thousand. 
the one whom earlier tested himself with the pleasures of sex to see if that was worth living for, come back to Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, the one who'd acquired a harem, the delights of man's heart, the one who says he'd become far greater than anyone in Jerusalem before him, the one who denied himself nothing that his eyes desired, denied himself no, oh, there we go, denied himself no pleasure. Sort of funny, because you just sort of wonder, maybe if he'd picked just one rather than a thousand, he might have actually had a better experience of women. The number was carefully picked, I think. Now, can I just say, the more things change, the more they stay the same, because nearly 3,000 years later, what entertains humans? If I flick on a music video, hopefully not this particular guy, because it's particularly hilariously dodgy, but, but, but you'll see a guy there singing with a bunch of stereotypically beautiful women around him. And this is Solomon. This bloke, just like every music video, has a harem. We're a long time away, and yet the more things have changed, the more they have stayed the same. And this is the kind of man that is speaking in this passage. The man who has women around for his pleasure. And you think, maybe if you had tried just one rather than a thousand, then maybe you'd have a different experience of them. Now, look, that's, that, is, that is a clear implication of the passage here, but, but women are not actually the point, though. The point here, if we go back to verse 25, is not so much about men versus women and is one more evil than the, the, than the, the other. The real point is that evil is actually universal. Evil is... Oh, sorry, we went to the wrong slide. I've got to go forward. Evil is actually everywhere. He was trying to trash women. That just came out in the wash. The point is actually that there are no good people. That people are universally infected with sin. Now he moves on. We're going to wrap these all together as we get on, come along later. He moves on. A little interesting little setup here about a king, which is hard to work out what it's doing here. See, why bother put a few proverbs about respecting the king here obey the king's command i say because you took an oath before god don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence don't stand up for a bad cause because he's just going to do whatever he wants anyway and since the king's word is supreme who can say to him what are you doing okay decent life advice just be careful around powerful people fair enough but what's the flow what's he going to do with this well we get back now into our investigation of evil Next, wickedness, evil, has power over those who practice it. See it there at the end, end of verse 8? As no one is discharged in the time of war. In the time of war, if you try and desert, the, 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 in the World War I, you could, be, you could and would be shot by your own side for deserting and running. Because the effect that you will have on the morale of your people running away and the effect on everyone else who will desert with you, the whole war could be lost. And in the same way as it's a life or death thing, wickedness wields power over those who practice it. You see, there's these points about a king, but the conclusion is actually that evil has the same power as a king. So if we go back to verses 
25, 26, 27, you see those statements there about evil, and then you see these statements in 8, 2 to 4. The point is that evil isn't just something that you might do. It's not just a mistake you might make or a temptation you might give into. It's a force that wants and does dominate and control human beings. Evil is a thing. Like the king to whom no one can question, so evil is in the lives of those whom it dominates. We come forward to 8 verse 11. We're going to see how these sort of weave together as we go. So far in this book, do you, there, there's, there's always been this forward look to judgment, hasn't there? The, the, the sentence the, that God is going to carry out, carry out, the question of what will God do on the last day when, everyone is, when everything is all said and done? And, and the real issue for the teacher so far has been that he doesn't know. He doesn't know when this is going to happen and he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he does know that somewhere far off enough into the future that he's always speaking about it in this book, even when subsequent generations are going to read it, he's speaking this, this judgment is going to be future. And then here he reflects on judgment when it is too far in the future. 8.11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, when the desert is not shot, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. When you don't punish someone, everyone else thinks they can get away with it, he says. And there's almost this implicit question about what is God up to? I know, I'm, I know these are all puzzling and I'm just leaving lots of threads open. But we, see, we can see here another puzzling little saying. Almost an observation from the teacher that God has been more patient than the teacher wants him to be. Because look what happens, God, when you leave judgment day till so much later. People just get into it even more. God, what are you doing? Wickedness is bad. It controls people. And when you don't judge it, it's things just get worse. But he never questions God directly. He's just smart enough to not quite say it. Eight fourteen. This is just two verses later. Now, for those of you who've been here, you'll have, you'll have seen that we've been translating that word that often is translated meaningless slightly differently. Uh, we're just translating it as something like smoke or, or vapor, mist. It's the Hebrew word hevel. It's the same, the same word that was actually Abel's name from the Cain and Abel story. Here today, gone tomorrow, Abel. This, this temporary thing. Uh, think, of, think the Bridgewater Jerry. It's, it's going along, but then, but then you, it's gone soon after. It's uh, the, the snowflake on your hand that it's there, and then it's soon just as soon as you try and grab it to hold it to take it home you've, you've, you've melted it so that it won't be on your hand when you get home the world is hevel the world is misty the world is unable to be grasped and so we've primarily been taking that as as this this sense of temporariness and yet it's a beautiful uh, word and i think very deliberately chosen by the teacher because it's actually got more than one meaning this mist this smoke it doesn't just mean temporary because, I mean, let's put this here. There's something else that's temporary that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is temporary. Well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But if he's saying, like we have been saying, that there's a difference between living with an open hand, knowing that God is going to give you gifts and that you can receive it without trying to grasp onto it to hold it, 
And there's a difference between living as if life is solid, not misty at all, and I can grab it and I can hold onto it and I can keep these things for my own security. I can live for gain. That I can then put this brick here and this brick here and this brick here and set up my little kingdom that's going to be impervious to loss. Well, if that's the picture here, well, then Hevel, this, this mist, can mean that something's actually ungraspable mentally. And so this is the other meaning. The other main meaning is, the first one is temporariness, but the second one is it's not graspable. As soon as I try and grab the, the wind, I look silly trying to chase wind, and as soon as I try and grab mist, I basically disperse it and stop it from being mist. It goes away. And here he's saying, mentally, I can't grasp this. I don't get this. God, what are you doing? Without ever saying it. It's too subtle. God, what are you doing? The righteous get what the wicked deserve. I've seen that. I've got friends who are good guys. And they are not getting what they deserve. And I've got friends who are terrible human beings. And they seem to be getting rewarded. I can't get my head around it is what he means. He's not saying this is meaningless. He's saying, I can't grasp the meaning. I can't, I can't, get, I can't get around it. I can't hold on to it. I can't. And maybe that's you too. Like, if you've seen someone, someone suffering in life and you're like, just not them, why them? They're, they're the best, why them? Why do they have to go through that, God? Or you see someone who... You've seen some darkness in their heart. They seem to be living the good life. Do you, do you resonate with the teacher here? I, can't, I don't get it, God. I can't grasp this. And this is what the teacher is wrestling with here as he, as he moves forward. As he moves forward to, to, to the conclusion, we're going to end in just these last few verses. It's a short talk tonight. These last few verses in 9, 1 to 3. I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. I've looked around and I can't tell who God likes and who God doesn't like, even if they look good or even if they're doing good or doing bad, because you, know, they, you can't tell from what they get. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who don't, as it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, those who are afraid to take them. What's their end? Well, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. So it starts to get pointed. The same destiny overtakes everyone. Just doesn't matter. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. There is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, well, they just go to join the dead. The teacher is struggling with this. We don't know what we're going to face when we get there. Who knows? Now, it's not philosophical here. He's, not, he's, he's moved out of philosophy mode. It's not even moral. It's personal. It, does God, is God going to love that person? Or is God going to hate that person? Will God love me? Or will God hate me? Like with the king, you have to take care how you act in his presence, says the teacher, because you don't know what, how he's going to respond. He's just going to do what he wants anyway, was his evaluation of the king earlier. And this is, this is a feature of life. It's hard. What is, and what does this do to us? This, bring, this reality in life brings anxiety, does it not? You, you've experienced anxiety? 
Anxiety is thinking about the future now and worrying about the negatives of the future now, but with the anticipation of a negative and, and yet with no control over it, so we just worry to pretend we have got some control. And so from the evidence under the sun, we don't know the answer. What will we face in the future with God? And this is, the, this is all the teacher can do. Now, I would love us to take a moment now to ask that question for ourselves. And I don't want you to say what you think the Bible says. Not normally what the preacher says. I want you to stop for a moment, take a few deep breaths, and picture in your mind's eye, in your gut's eye, the last day. Judgment day. What's the picture that floats in your head? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Where is God in that scene? Where is he located? And where are you? Where are you located in the scene? Has he seen you yet? What if he did? What would it be like? What look will come across his face? There are a few different ways that we can choose not to worry about the future and just live in the now. You could know what's going to happen. Unfortunately, that's not a live option for us. We don't know what's going to happen. You could just be an eternal optimist and expect the good, but you get disproven after a little while. You could trust yourself to secure the future and work hard, but that's been the whole point of Ecclesiastes. You can't secure your own future. You could trust yourself as being strong enough to, to bear up under it and be okay no matter what the future throws at you. Pl play stoic. You'll be crushed by it. Or you could just do what the teacher does, do the best thing that he's got to give which so far has been a philosophical, pragmatic ignoring of the future. Live now. Don't, don't live then. Live now, now. Enjoy the moment. You can't know anyway. Just be the best thing. Just be here. Enjoy the ride. Surely that is the good thing that we can do. But there is one more option. And it wasn't available to the teacher, but it is available to us. We can trust the person who is in control of the future. We go to Romans 8. Romans 8 is this, this, this passage which has held a little bit earlier a lot of resonances with Ecclesiastes. It's the passage where we've been going to to talk about the frustration that God has placed on this earth that the teacher has been trying to sort of unpack for us. And in Romans 8, he says here that you will not be able on that day to be separated from God's love for you. How does that interact with your visual? Your gut instinct as to what it'll be like on the last day. You will not be able to stop him from getting close to you. You will not be able to stop him from being with you in love. Uh, go on. Later on, the, the third last line, who's, who on that day is going to bring any charge against you? You're going to be in a courtroom, but a courtroom where there's not a charge that's available. Who can bring any charge against them who goes, God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who could be against you in the courtroom? There won't even be a prosecution lawyer there because God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he, having given him up, will give us all things graciously. No one will be able to accuse you on that day if you know Jesus, including you, including your conscience, whether you've been able to give up the wrong things you've done or not. It won't make any difference. See, the teacher had to do experiments. And I think this is kind of, this is just the rubber hits the road for us. The teacher had to, to do experiments. He had to make observations about the world generally. And he said, look, I can't tell who God likes and who God doesn't like. Because some people who are just beautiful, their health may be, their, their life may be, just get smashed. I can't tell from looking around because some of those people look really godly and they're the ones who are getting smashed. But you are different. You've got more than what the teacher had. You have been told by someone who has taken a bullet for you, don't look around you, don't look under the sun, don't wonder, don't wonder from your circumstances if God loves you. Look back to Jesus' trauma, not yours. Look back to Jesus' trauma. He went knowingly to so that he could enfold you in his arms. We look back as Christians, like we said last week, we're willing to go back and feel the pain, the shame of our past to face it. And, and we want to remind ourselves, we want, to, we want to connect there with the fact that God was there then. He didn't abandon us. He was actually present even in our sad and difficult and, sh- and shameful pasts. There's nothing so painful or shameful about those past moments that are, that are saddest for us that could make God abandon us. How do I know that? Well, because it's personal, because we don't look back just to our pain. We don't stop there. We look back further to his pain at the cross. His statement of commitment to us. And we take our pain there. We take our shame there. And we leave it at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. All of the things that are actually the real evil that are in our hearts and the evil done to us, we take all of this, the stuff that we do deserve judgment for, the stuff that we've done, and we watch it roll away down the other side of the hill. And we find that we can't be separated from the love of God for us. Look, the teacher didn't know. The teacher didn't know that. But there is nothing that can separate you if you're in Christ from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Joel and Hannah, you get to remind George of that as often as you've got breath to do so. And everyone else, you too. We promised to, didn't we? Let's ask God now that George and all of us would trust this deep in our hearts. Heavenly Father, the teacher points out so many of the problems in the world and the folly of, of, of evil, yes, but also the folly of trying to read from, from the circumstances of life who you love and who you are going to judge. And so, Lord, it is so good. We're going to praise you now for your giving us relief, for just giving us certainty that as we look at the cross, we can trust the one who knows what's going to happen in the future. 
that there is nothing that will be able to separate us from your love. Father, we pray that we would bring that image into, into those images that we have of, of Judgment Day. That we'll see it aright. That we'll see it in the way that you describe it to us. Father, not, not so that we can just feel better, not so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that we can praise your son Jesus for how good he is, that he will get the honour and glory that he deserves for having not only loved us at the cross, but for having made sure that we could know that we loved. So Lord, thank you for speaking to us tonight. May it not just be George, but all of us over the coming years that hear these words from each other's lips to remind us of what Jesus did at the cross for us and the impossibility of getting away from your smiling, fatherly hug. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory because he achieved it. Amen.